It's time for security now. Steve Gibson is here. Well, we got a lot to talk about. The Apple Play uh, currency kerfuffle. Uh, more poodle news. And yes, lots of questions. Lots of answers. It's a Q&A episode of Security Now next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 479, recorded Tuesday, October 28th, 2014. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 199. Security Now is brought to you by Citrix ShareFile. Enhance your workflow. Send files of almost any size easily and securely with Citrix ShareFile. Try ShareFile today for a 30-day free trial. Go to ShareFile.com, click the microphone, and enter Security Now. And by... IT Pro TV. Are you looking to upgrade your IT skills or prepare for certification? IT Pro TV offers engaging and informative tutorials. Stream to your Roku, computer, or mobile device for 30% off the lifetime of your account. Go to itpro.tv slash security now and use the code SN30. And by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way it should be, anonymously and without oversight. Save 50% with a 12-month subscription. Go to ProXPN.com slash twit and use the code SN50 at checkout. It's time for Security Now, the show where we cover your security now and privacy and, you know, anything that's on Steve's mind. Steve Gibson is here. He is the man in charge not only of Security Now, but the Gibson Research Corporation, his website, grc.com. That's him. You know, because of the perspective, Steve, of the camera, your hands look massive. <laughs> the world's Jim, largest I, hands. <laughs> I saw um, a preview of uh, uh, Letterman, and I think Jim Carrey is going to be on, and it yes. looks like he's wearing monster feet. And, of course, <laughs> that I think he probably is. First, I thought it was exactly that. They had a, a wide-angle lens. Yeah. Yeah. But I think he's actually wearing like large. I think you never feet. know like, exactly ah. what's going on with Jim Carrey. That's true. <laughs> so, well, hello, um, Steve. How are you today? We have, we're finally getting to do a Q and A. We were not over overrun by news. We have some interesting news, and in fact, I'm going to make you go back through the currency issue again because which you just covered on MacBreak. Because I think our listeners. We'll find that that whole issue interesting. Maybe we'll do it a little less extensively than you just did. But you but, always and we always interested in your you know nuts and bolts take on this kind of stuff. You know, yeah, the, the deep stuff. Then we uh, it turns out that uh, in the news, although actually not news or not new, uh, are some very worrisome to, to many people uh, cookies. Which, uh, like super cookies, which Verizon and AT&T, at least, have been found to be adding to uh, their mobile users' yeah. network traffic. Um, then, like bizarre coincidence, RC4, the cipher I was talking about last week that I you know, have always been so enamored of because it, for, for how simple it is, it's just amazingly good. It got an upgrade. Um, and so I want to talk about that briefly, and then we've got a Q and A. So actually, actually, I couldn't just I couldn't whittle it down to ten. We ended up with eleven, 
comments and thoughts and notes from our customers. From our customers. Our from customers. Our listeners. They are our customers. Yes. Yes. They're our advertisers' customers, our sponsors' <laughs> yeah, customers, well, and true, our yeah. listeners. Yeah. So uh, I'm like, going to have some fun here for the next hour and a half or so. I'm going to do an ad. Uh, before we get to the meat of it, but but uh, maybe while I'm doing the ad, I don't know if you posted the show notes yet. They're saying they don't see them yet. Oh, I forgot. So and they're, they're well, the same you the same URL that they always are. Plus so if they four seven nine just just change just just yeah. change the number. Or, or actually, I'll do it while you're talking. That's what I thought. I think that's what you're about to suggest. <laughs> actually, with my thought uh, exactly. Okay. While maybe I'm talking, would you post those? Uh, you know well. why? Because people care. They want to follow along um, with what with what you're talking about. In fact, that's why we well, put out the transcripts. Course. A lot of people, after they download the show, like to like to read the transcripts while you're talking. Yeah, we don't we don't have a bouncing ball. If we could get no. the bouncing ball somehow, that would be good. <laughs> uh, our show today brought to you by the good good graces of our friends at Citrix. Their program Citrix Share File solves a big problem. In business today, I know you want to send email attachments. I know you. I can see it. I see your finger itching, but you know you're not supposed to. You know what? Email attachments are insecure. It's the number one way viruses got spread, uh, spear phishing attacks, that kind of thing. Plus, nowadays, the files we're sharing are large, sometimes so big, often so big, that they that email's totally inappropriate. You know, they're going to bounce back and even if they didn't you shouldn't be sending somebody a gigabyte file via email that's just that's rude woo how wooed there is a better way it's the way i use it's citrix share file uh instead of sending an attachment you're sending a secure link in your email now if you're using outlook it'll look just like you're sending an attachment in fact browse around at citrix uh, website sharefile.com and take a look at how it works they have a wonderful set of tools uh, sync tools for Windows and Mac. Um, they have uh, the um, Outlook plugin that makes it very easy to attach it to your email. The thing is, you're going to be sending something that looks much more professional. When when people click that link, they'll get a website branded with your name. That link is an HTTPS secure link. And furthermore, you control it much more than you would an email attachment. You can say who can open it, how long they have access to it, how many times they can download it. And no more bounce backs, no more issues with, uh, you know, spreading viruses. And most importantly, in my opinion, most importantly, uh, you, you, you just you just aren't you're secure. You're not sending something through the email that anybody can read at any time. I use it to share files with the radio stations. I'm always giving them audio files. It's very easy. I record the file, save it into the share file folder locally. It's automatically synchronized to the share file folder on the cloud. I can share it from there. I get a secure link. If I forget, I can use my uh, the apps. They're free apps on the smartphone and uh, tablet stuff. And I just, you know, I say, here's the file. They get a link. They click it. They see my logo. It's very clear. They don't have to sign up for anything. That just says download. It says it's a wave. It says how big it is. It really is great. Customizable for many different industries. In fact, I invite you to try it free for 30 days by going to sharefile.com. Up at the top of the page, you'll see it says podcast listeners. At the very tippity top. If you would use that link, Steve and I would be very grateful. Then enter the offer code security now. Pick your industry, too, because it's HIPAA compliant, compliant with regulations, SEC regulations and others. So pick the industry so you make sure that it uh, satisfies the requirements in your industry and they can customize it for you. Share file. Yeah, there's the trans 
Something the chairman says, Swede too says, how they transferred HTTPS. It's an SSL. And that's the nice thing. Otherwise, you'd need to have special clients or whatever. You could do it right out of the browser. Sharefile.com. Click the microphone at the top of the page and use the offer code security now, one word. And uh, you'll you 30 days free, and Steve will get credit, and everybody will be happy. Steve Gibson posted. has posted it. He has done the yep. duty, done the deed. So, as always, let's start with the week's security news. So, let's talk about the sort of distressing number of retailers who have decided to eschew Apple Pay in favor of their own uh, sort of non Apple-based solution called Current C, which I guess is actually um, it's mcx.com right. is the site. This and is a Walmart see, product, but these guys have signed up for three years, and I think they're contractually obligated not to offer Apple Pay. Ooh, yeah, you think? You, now I would be surprised if that was legal for them to say, like, we agree well, not to do. It. I guess I guess it could be exclusive, but that sounds like an antitrust sort of deal mm. where. Like, it's hard to imagine that any of them couldn't decide to also... Well, I wonder you know, if these guys... I mean, it's Chili's, it's 7-Eleven, it's Sears, it's Dick's Sporting Goods. It's, well, it's you know, it's a huge and, number of big companies, Kmart. And this is, as I understand it, currency is not a credit card system. That's it's the point. It's a debit card system. That's the but point. A lot, they didn't a want lot it. of people, a lot, a lot of people need to put stuff on... On credit, right? Well, you can still use a credit card. This is a this is a system designed to. Well, it's not a tap and pay system. You actually get a QR code. You have to scan with your phone. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a real. It's a. It's a. By the way, major security issues. I don't know if you've heard this, but a similar system was tried in China and abandoned. The Chinese government forced them to abandon it uh, because of security concerns. For instance, everybody could see that QR code. Right, I need to, all I need is to do is snap a picture of it, and I can. Well, I mean, and, there's all sorts of issues and, with this. And what if we know anything? If we've learned anything from this podcast over the last nearly ten years, it's that this stuff is difficult to do correctly. And you know, we don't know anything about at, at this point about the detailed background operation of this. Who designed it? Where it came from? You know, what the protocols are? I mean, whether you know, like what kind of problems it's going to have so anyway just sort of interesting that that i I guess if we understand the the background of this these these merchants decided that they didn't want to to offer credit-based sales where visa and mastercard and so forth took their couple percentage points uh of payment and decided to just sort of go their own way so they also want the uh, personal information which even with a credit card, you get some, but you don't get all. In this case, the contract you, you you sign, you agree to when you download and install the currency app says they can have even things like your phone's unique identifier, your health information, your social security number. So wow. it's, it you know, let's hope they have good security on their end because they've got everything. Wow. This is going to be great material for the podcast. <laughs> We're going to, there's like. This is wonderful. It's 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 like it's it's, it's like I you think know, it's a non-starter. The, Nobody's going to use this. It's just dumb. Um, I hope. Uh, well, the fact that you have to download an app 
yeah. is is a bit of a barrier because yeah. people will just go in and they just you know they just want their aspirin or whatever from the drugstore. They don't want it's like what do I have to have an app here? Gee, here here's two bucks. I'm you know I'm done. So we we'll haven't see seen the happens. whole thing. There will be I'm sure just as there is. This is very much like a loyalty card. So there will be incentives. Ah. Uh, Right. They'll say Fits save twelve dollars if you use currency, right. or so get it's free aspirin if right. you you know yeah. I mean, there's no way uh, somebody would use this without incentives, so they're going to have to give you some sort of incentives, right? Right. Okay, so the distressing news that has been uh, all the buzz the last few days is it has come to light that Verizon and and I have verified both Verizon and AT and T are inserting a persistent, unblockable tracking header into their customers' outbound traffic. Um, someone put up a site, uh, and I could not do it because it, this only works over non-SSL. So SSL, of course, or a VPN is the way to block this. Ah. And GR, GRC is is locked now to SSL because I've got, you know, I've got all of the browsers uh, knowing to only connect to GRC.com securely. But it's that may less expi- explain why, because I did my Verizon iPhone and I tried. I went through that site and I didn't get an ID. It said okay. no ID, but maybe because I, I don't know. Did you have Wi-Fi on? Yeah. Probably. Ah, so so, and I did too. So this morning it has at to breakfast, be through Verizon, obviously. Yes, I and I have I this morning at breakfast. I had both my iPhone and my iPad with me, and the iPad is still grandfathered in the original unlimited bandwidth AT and T plan. So it's the only reason I'm still over on AT and T. Although actually now with Verizon being increasingly egregious, um, I'm, you know, I'm there. I'm, I'm there too on my iPhone. So anyway, the site is lessonslearned.org slash sniff, L-E-S-S-O-N-S-L-E-A-R-N-E-D dot org slash S-N-I-F-F. And I'm not sure how long the page is going to be there. The The guy who put it up said, you know, this may only be here for a few days. But neither device showed this so-called uh, UIDH um, uh, header. When I then turned Wi-Fi off so that both were going through the, the cellular carrier, both showed this UIDH. I'm looking at mine. MZC5, NJG5, MTI, blah, 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 blah. I mean, it's a long base 64 encoded binary blob. Now, the way this works is interesting. The um, We have anecdotal reports that it changes weekly, but it's definitely sticky across multiple days because many people have said, oh, yeah, I checked yesterday and the day before and today, and it's always the same. So at some point, it changes. But the idea is that Every single query that is passing from your device out through the carrier, Verizon and AT&T are both doing this, which is not secured, that is, which is in the clear. So non-HTTPS browsing where where the, the, the transaction is not encrypted gets this header added to it 
courtesy of the ISP. So every recipient of a query by your device, which means the site you're visiting, but also remember all of the other resources that that page causes your browser to fetch from like advertisers, they all receive this cookie, this thing that is that is persistent. I mean, like very sticky. It isn't itself immediately useful to them. They get this, pay Verizon for information about you. Oh, no. By, by giving Verizon this token, which has which has sticky but sort of semi-persistent meaning. Oh, no. Ver, Ver, Verizon looks it up and then returns information about you in return for money. So this is Verizon monetizing what they know about you, which, of course, is everything. You're the account holder. Um, and so advertisers are able to exchange, you know, or exchange money for information. So Verizon is directly monetizing their relationship with you via this identifying tag. Now, it also is a tracking tag. I mean, it, it turns out there's part of this you can opt out of. Apparently, you you can go to Verizon, log in there. There's some way to turn off their monetization, which is on by default, but that doesn't turn off the tag. So you're still tagged. And if nothing else, this is a way, for example, of bridging across cleaning of your cookies or, you know, like if you delete your cookies, then, but this tag is undeletable because it's not coming from your browser. It's inserted into the traffic as it leaves the Verizon ISP out onto the broader internet. So, so if somebody had given you a cookie and, and associate it with this tag, and then you deleted your cookies in order to shake these people off, well, they'd see the same tag they had and be able to reassociate you with a new cookie. So, you know, it's, it's annoying, and there's no way to turn it off. There's, you're able to opt in to some additional program, which is even worse, or opt out of the monetization, which, is, which by default you're opted into unless you turn it off. But otherwise... This is, you know, Verizon deciding we're going to monetize our customers. And um, and both both my iPad, which is on AT&T, and my iPhone, which is on Verizon, are both doing this. And this site uh, very conveniently lets you see this. LessonsLearned.org slash sniff. Verizon announced uh, they were going to do this three years ago. Here's a CNN article quoting the CTO for Verizon. He said, it says... David Small raised the point 4G will allow users to do even more with their cell phones and other wireless <laughs> devices, which means carriers will be gathering more consumer data than ever before via their networks. Quote, all that data about all the facets of users' lives, that's got value, Small said. Mm. And that's a revenue opportunity for us. They don't even hire it, hide it. They call it Precision ID, by the way. That's their yeah. their their name for so this. So this was how yes. they plan to monetize 4G and LTE. 
and this has been going on for a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, it just isn't, you know, it's, it hasn't really come to everyone's attention before. Uh, and I think now post Snowden and, you know, everyone's way more sensitized to this than we were, you know, a couple of years ago. So anyway, uh, this is a simple way to to see that it is happening. Apparently, there there have been people who have reported that they're not seeing it. It could be that they've got Wi-Fi on and they're using their local Wi-Fi. You know, the, our, our phones and pads and mobile devices will preferentially use that traffic rather than the, the cellular traffic if, if it has a choice. So I did have to turn mine off in order to see this. And when I did, I, I saw my, my long wacky cookie, you know, so it's like, okay, well, I mean, at least we know. At, at the same conference, the Sprint guy said, there's a fine line between monetization and consumer trust. So Sprint showed some sensitivity, but I do wonder if Verizon's, I doubt they're the only one doing this. No, we know that AT and T is. Oh, they are. I've, okay, I've seen my cookie also. So AT it's not like you can flee flee Verizon and it will all be okay. Correct, and and reports are that T Mobile is not currently doing it. But I strength I I stress the word currently because you know Verizon and AT and T, if nothing else, have paved the way. So well, you know, but T Mobile, if they're smart, you know their whole thing because they're number four, they try harder <laughs> is to provide <laughs> right. an alternative to the big guys. And if they're smart, they'll say, "We don't do it. We'll never do it. You can trust us." Something like that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So. Last week, I was talking about how much I like the RC4 Cypher. Uh, this was in the context of, of comparing it to Cypher blockchaining, which is a lot more complex. And I, I, I sort of re refreshed everyone's memory of what RC4 was. And Bruce Schneier blogged about a paper that was uh, made public at a conference by RC4's original parent, Ron Rivest, um, and, uh, and, and one, one of his, um, uh, a, a guy that he works with, uh, Jacob Schult. Um, and they made a tiny tweak to RC4 to essentially bring it to state-of-the-art strength. Bruce wrote, last week, Ron, oh, last week, sorry, Ron Rivest, gave a talk at MIT about Spritz, which is the name of this updated spritzed uh, RC4, a new stream cipher by him and Jacob Schult. It's basically a redesign of RC4 given current cryptographic tools and knowledge. So I think RC4 is like 25 years old. So, you know, this is a big jump forward. Uh, Bruce wrote RC4, and I, I love it because he feels about it the way I do. He said, is an example of what I think of as a too-good-to-be-true cipher. It looks so simple. It is so simple. In classic cryptographic terms, it's a single rotor machine. It's a single self-modifying rotor, but it modifies itself very slowly. Even and remember how I described it as a as a two fifty six byte vector of you know so so a, an array a linear um, vector of two fifty six bytes which can each hold one of two fifty six values. You initially fill it up with just zero through two fifty five, and then the key is used to s perform swaps. So this 
vector always has one of each value in it, but in a scrambled up order. And then you have two pointers into that, which you move around over time and perf continually perform swaps. So it's so that's what Bruce means when he says it's the, the this rotor as he's describing this vector is having it it's it's having two terms exchanged over time. So he says even so it is very hard to cryptanalyze. Now he's just still talking about the original 25 year old RC4. Even though the single rotor leaks information about its internal state, which is normally a no-no, he says, with every output byte, its self-modifying structure always seems to stay ahead of analysis. But RC4 has been around for over 25 years, and the best attacks are at the edge of practicality, meaning that even now, and this is why I've continued to stay enamored of it, as I've talked about, you know, it's, it's still strong. He says, when I talk about what sorts of secret cryptographic advances the NSA might have, a practical RC4 attack is one of the possibilities so, because they're, you know, they're becoming uncomfortable with it. So Spritz, Bruce writes, is Rivest and Schultz redesign of RC4. It retains all of the problems that RC4 had. It's built on a 256-element array of bytes, making it less than ideal for modern 32-bit and 64-bit CPUs. It's not very fast. And he says it's 50% slower than RC4, which was already much slower than algorithms like AES and 3FISH, which, of course, is Bruce's own. Um, he says it has a long key setup, but it's a very clever design. So when he says that Spritz has the problems that RC4 has, he, what he means is in the context of today's ultra-beefy processors where we've got three levels of monster caches and six, we're able to process 64 bits at a, in, in, in a single chunk, a... A wide block cipher like Rindall, like, you know, the AES cipher, that fits the architecture of current machines. So, th so they're able to, to chew through 128-bit, um, 16-bytes-at-a-time ciphers very quickly. And, in fact, you know, new, the, the, late, the latest Intel processors have special... AES instructions, so you know to to further improve the performance. But um, in the show notes here, I show RC, the entire algorithm of RC four and the entire algorithm of of Spritz, and basically it's like a couple of, of assignment statements. You know, I equals I plus one is the first one for RC4. And they changed that to I equals I plus W in spritz, where that could be any odd number, but they typically leave it at one. And then the second one is J equals J plus S sub I, meaning that you take the ith, you know, S is that, uh, that, that linear vector. So you take the ith element of that S and add it to J. 
That's like the second instruction. Then you swap S sub I and S sub J. And then Z, which is the output, you get from taking S sub I plus S sub J and using that as a pointer to pick a value from S. And that's your output. That's the entire algorithm of RC4. And Spritz only adds one line to that. So, so for example, while, yes, it's, you know, sticking it on a modern monster processor that dims the lights when you turn it on and is pumping heat out of the back, while that doesn't make sense, putting this in, for example, a medical pacemaker that you're implanting in your chest where you want a really good cipher that takes no power, that's where this thing makes sense. Or, in fact, I, I saw somebody in, in the comments on, on, on Bruce's blog posting commented that this would be beautiful in JavaScript because anybody could write this, you know, I mean, like without, I mean, like there's no debugging, there's no arrays. I've implemented AES myself a couple times in Assembler and, and even in C, it's daunting. I mean, it's, it's you know, you got to be very careful. It's huge. And yes, you get good performance because it, it maps onto today's processors. But this you could you could if anyone, for example, wanted a solid cipher that they as a hobby could write in in a few lines of JavaScript, I'd use Spritz at this point because, you know, it gets the job done. So anyway, I just thought that was you know very cool that they made uh, they added one one other assignment. Um, statement basically to an incredibly simple algorithm and re-strengthened it up to you know useful state-of-the-art level very cool and i leo i've been watching you talk about the ipad air 2 uh mine came uh i guess it was what was it friday um and I've I've watched you do your close your eyes. Uh, you did it with Sarah yesterday, and and everyone guesses the wrong one because it's not actually very much lighter. How many is it grams? Um, it's, it's it's not much. No, um, I I like it. I just it, it does to me. I can feel it being thinner. But your other comment, you were dead on the money with. I'm seeing the battery not last nearly as long. Yeah, so that's disappointing. I mean, it's a 15% smaller battery. Yeah. yeah. And while, yes, it's way it's more, more powerful in terms of process. Well, remember, yes, it's more efficient because it's like double the processing speed right. and like, what is it, six times more graphics performance? Oh, yeah. So they're like, they've like, they've, it, it's an engineering marvel. But frankly, as you have said, do you need, you know, for what I'm doing, I'm checking email and, and, tw and Twitter and reading PDFs. On it, I, I'm not playing, you know, 3D immersive games on my iPad, um, and and I may I may seriously bring it back into the house. I actually I got it because I could use a third one in my the way I have my world set up. One lives out in the car, and so I like the idea of having a Touch ID enabled pad, you know, that travels around outside with me in case it ever got loose. It would be locked up, but I'm thinking I'm going to go back to my my original iPad Air that has a longer battery life because it, it is when it's mobile that it that I care about it being you know the the, the battery lasting a long time. And you so, probably don't do any hardcore you know processor no. intensive stuff. 
No, I don't. Yeah. I just I just use it as sort of a reference device. Right. And and it's, you know, as you said, it's uh, I mean, I, I like it. It's a beautiful piece oh, yeah. of engineering. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm disappointed, actually, that they that they, you know, you know sort of skimmy down on the battery because no, nobody's saying uh, I want it thinner. It's not <laughs> no. like, you know, oh, there's this drumbeat. Oh, it's got to be thinner. And I think yeah. almost everybody says, yeah, more battery life would be good. So I don't, yeah, I don't yeah. really understand it. Yeah, well, and, we, you know, we got, we, it, it got Touch ID, as did the Mini. So that's nice. So it's like, uh, okay. And <laughs> I do agree w- with Renee's comment. The screen is just gorgeous. There's, it's, it, it has a, like a, there is like like a, a an interesting sort of blue tint, you know, an anti-reflective coating blue. I I, I noticed that because I have a a panel of LEDs here, and if I look at them reflected in the iPad screen, they pick up a blue oh, tint. That's interesting. To them. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, um, but and it also the colors seem more saturated. I mean, it's a it is a stunning. LCD display, but I, I think the 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 conclusion I've seen you reach on your other podcasts, which is if you already have an iPad Air, eh, no need to feel like oh now your old one is obsolete. It's you know certainly not. Yeah, uh, and if so. you have an old old one, you know maybe it. You know if, it, if the thing is, it's, oh yeah, it's, if you've got one of the old humpback. It's... Yeah, if you yes. got an old humpback, you'll definitely know the difference. Absolutely, <laughs> no doubt. Even a three, you'd notice a big difference. <laughs> um, so, uh, I'm trying to think. Oh, this is what it was. Uh, I got an interesting note from a from a Steve Ellison in Bradford, Pennsylvania. I got a kick out of this. This is he called them. He, he called them spin-righted neologisms abound. And he said, Steve, long-time listener here, in listening to the discussions about the new term spin-righted, I wanted to put forth our tech group's take on the term at all. He said, working as a technical analyst at a regional campus of a large U.S. university, um, and he specifically kept himself anonymous for whatever reason, he said, when we get a spare moment, we like to pontificate on such topics as what should a drive that has successfully passed spinrite be called? What should a drive that has been fixed by spinrite be called? What should a drive that fails even after the magic of spinrite be called? <laughs> so we propose that a drive that has been through a spinrite operation with nothing bad found should be referred to as having been spun. Okay. Penultimate, okay. Penultimately, yes. a drive that is fixed by a spin-right operation should be referred to as having been spin-righted, <laughs> R-I-G-H-T. Right. Like it's it. been made, it's been made, made right. right by spin R-I-G-H-T-E-D. Yes. Last. I think I know where we're know- going if it doesn't. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Last, but in no way the least, yes. a drive that fails even after spin-right should be referred to as being spin-rotten. Oh, I love it. <laughs> so he says, just our, mine, my brother, with whom I work, and our work-study students, two cents 
on some neologisms <laughs> that should be added to the jargon like of the it. tech mainstream. Oh, Lord. They have way spun, too much time. spin righted and it is now spin-rotten. Yeah. Yep. Thank you very much, Steve. Eleven questions await us, my friends. Steve's been busy, busy, busy. Before we begin those, launch into those questions, if you wouldn't mind, Steve, I'd like to talk about one of our favorite companies, IT Pro TV. Um, Tim and Don came to, came to us, came to the studio, and visited the studio and said, we would uh, we would like to steal your ideas, <laughs> and I said what? Uh, they saw a uh, there's Tim Broom. He's the uh, he's one of the founders. He said we watched your NAB talk about how you do Twit. See there it says IT Pro TV was built by fans of Twit for fans of Twit. There there's uh, <laughs> there's Don, <laughs> and we said what you know we have been Tim and Don have been trainers for years t- teaching people how to get their certs. In IT, you know, their MCSE and their A plus and their Cisco certs and all that. And uh, they said, wouldn't it be cool if we did what Leo's doing with Twit, only we did it for IT training? And that's how IT Pro TV was born just a couple of years ago. And by the way, now is huge, is going great guns because they were right. People do want this. If you are studying to get your certs or you just want to improve your IT skills, You've got to check it out at itpro.tv slash security now. You can study for the Security Plus, the A Plus, the CCNA, the new ISC squared uh, security certs. And by the way, they've got Adam Gordon, who is a great instructor. He, he literally wrote the book on security. Uh, your Microsoft certs, your CompTIA, your project management. They've got now Apple certs. They currently offer Apple's Mac Integration Basics and Mac Management Basics. They're doing – the thing is they add 30 hours of new programming a week just like we do. So uh, later this year they're going to start doing uh, ACMT content, Apple Certified Mac Technos- Technician, Microsoft Office content. You can check out the full list right now at itpro.tv slash security now. Once you see all the stuff you can learn, understand that the way you're learning this is so much fun. In fact – Let's go to their uh, – I'm going to sign in and go to their live on-air stream. It's very much like watching Twit. You can watch it on your Roku, on your laptop, on your tablet. Uh, they do. If you sign up for a year at a time, they do make, let you download the files so you can watch offline as well, which is nice. You get a lot of other things. So you see they, they have a live stream. They now have added text messaging, so you can sign up for SMS. This is something I've always wanted to do. They're way ahead of me. Well, they're IT pros. Uh, you'll get a text message when they begin a course. They've got a live chat room. And you can see it does really kind of look a lot like tech TV. Maybe a little bit of the screensavers thrown in. They were screensavers fans too. They have a new web interface and learning management system to track your progress so you'll know exactly where you stand. They've also added a virtual machine sandbox lab so that you can, uh, even if you don't have a Windows server, for instance, set it up with clients, configure it, Trash it. Doesn't matter. As long as you have an HTML5 uh, browser on your computer, you can do it. It's really sweet. The Measure Up practice exams are also included with your subscription. That's worth 79 bucks itself. Corporate accounts also available. Check it out at itpro.tv slash security now and use the code SN30. You're going to save 30% for the lifetime of your account. That's a pretty good deal. 
30% off for the lifetime of your account. ITPro.tv slash security now. It's normally 57 bucks a month or $570 a year. That is, I mean, that's a lot cheaper than a technical school. I think you're going to learn better. And it's it's about it's about the cost of a couple of those learning manuals, you know. If you sign up now, forty dollars a month, three ninety nine for the entire year. Itpro.tv slash security now. Check it out today. I think you're going to like it. And say hi when you do to Tim and Don. They're great guys. All right, Steve. I have been sitting here with questions, burning a hole in my pocket. Shall I bring them forth? Oh, I, I muted you. Go ahead. By all means. By all means. By any means necessary. We'll start with uh, question one. This comes to us from Kevin in North Carolina. Do you have Carolina. something hang, hanging from the back of your laptop? What yeah. Um, her name is Somebody. Miley Cyrus. Uh, oh, and she's sitting on the apple. Yeah. Nice. Don't ask where the stem went. Okay. Our question from Kevin in North Carolina concerns random MAC addresses. Hi. He says, <laughs> hi, my name is Kevin. Hi, my name is Kevin. And I am a short time listener. I've been listening for the past few months since a friend mentioned your show. Uh, the show is great. I watched the screensavers. Uh, so listening to Leo is like running into an old friend. Don't run into me too hard, will you? Uh, you mentioned in the last security now that random Mac addresses would not cause any problems and they provide little value. I don't think so, Steve. I think hard-coded MAC addresses are extremely valuable to the enterprise. Asset management software like HP Asset Management is dependent on MAC addresses to uniquely identify hardware. Things like Wake on LAN require so that, so that you can uh, uniquely identify a computer on a big old network. Just wanted to include that bit of information for discussion. See, Steve was saying, who cares about MAC addresses? Unique MAC addresses is not that important. Well, okay, so kind of. Um, and I guess maybe this is just so some clarification is needed because we were talking about and I and I didn't make it clear. So my fault, a particular instance of Wi-Fi Mac addresses only in a certain circumstance. So this was this was and as we now know, it's actually less useful than we were hoping it was. This was Apple announcing that with iOS 8, when you did not have a an association with a, uh, a Wi-Fi connection, when you're, you know, walking around in the mall and various retailers are offering free Wi-Fi, rather than your phone in that mode only... Um, essentially broadcasting your the, the phone's ethernet mac address it uses something random but for connections and for anything of greater persistence i mean like like you know real real use of uh, your connection then it absolutely and always res uh, falls back to the device's true mac address and in fact as we learned it falls back all too often whenever it wakes up to act to check email it's it stops using a random address and and you know unless it's really in a deep slumber unfortunately uh the mac address is not randomized but i completely i just wanted to say i completely agree with kevin that you know um having that unique tag 
is valuable. It's also the case that, you know, firewalls lock onto it. You, you're able to, although it's not super useful, as we've discussed, you're able to block use of, of routers and things based on MAC addresses. So it, it's, it's not valuable for security purposes because it's, it's easily spoofed, but it's, you know, one more piece of information that is useful. And uh, by all means, you know, the, you know, regular um, networking equipment in enterprise is certainly not randomizing its MAC address. It's a static address. Um, it is typically possible to override that in software. Um, but uh, otherwise, I completely agree with with Kevin's point. Yeah, and actually, you know, I don't know if they still do it, but I remember the cable companies used to yes. log your MAC address for your cable modem, and if you change yes. your cable modem, they'd have to kind of reset it somehow. Yes, I, I, I think um, what I remember is, in fact, even recently, I think you need to, um, uh, like, leave yourself offline right. for some time. Pull the power, and yeah. Exactly, and let them sort of you know forgive you for changing your MAC address, <laughs> and that's one. Of, that's one. It was always one of the reasons why having a router between you and your cable company was convenient, right. even if you only had one computer behind it, or you were like you know plugging and unplugging and changing computers. The cable company would always see the router's MAC address and not the, the, the you know the the, the merry-go-round of MAC addresses that was. Uh, that the router was was having to yeah. contend with, and of course, uh, having an iPhone with a rotating MAC address wouldn't have impact that in any way. But no, just the point being that MAC addresses are used sometimes. Steve yeah. in uh, Columbus, Ohio, encountered a wow four dollar and eighty cents annual SSL certificate. He says, "I've been helping a web designer uh, install SSL certificates, and I don't have much experience with them, but uh, we've been able to work." work them out together why she asks me and not tech support from where she bought them i i don't know uh, i think actually he answers his own question because you know four dollars and 80 cents is why yeah, yeah, yeah. you're not anyway, going to get much support in the rare instances i need a cert i use digicert after your recommendations uh but when i told her about them she said oh no i no, i'm getting my certs from cheap sslsecurity.com <laughs> <laughs> well what could possibly be wrong with that it's only $4.80 a year. Steve, how are these so cheap? Are they just repackaging the free start SSL certs and putting a small charge in each? Uh, I'm not switching from DigiCert because I trust them and they have great customer service. But why the vastly different uh, price? It, DigiCert's, what, 140 bucks versus $4.80? How can they do it okay. so cheap? So you need to go to the site, Leo, cheapsslsecurity.com. Well, it them I mean I poked around there this morning when I when I when I saw Steve's note. Um these are not people I had seen before and nice clip art think, on the front though. I always like that. It, yeah, she's smiling. She's happy with her SSL she cert. Know what that, she's pointing at. And what what she pay $4? $4.80 uh, a year. Yeah. So the only thing I can figure It's a Komodo certificate though. I mean, that's a good Well, company. Komodo or well, that one is Komodo, then they have Rapid SSL and GeoTrust. Yeah, but they now, go up. Brand yes, brand name certs like Symantec uh, who bought VeriSign, uh GeoTrust, and you know, those are more pricey. Right. I was glad to see that if you if you wanted EV certs, they said well that what would not be instantaneous. You know, they That they would be a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. They tell you that that might take a week, yeah. whereas the other one is just moments away. Ooh. So 
I think what they must have is a resale relationship yeah. or maybe a, you know, like, like some relation, some connection into the back ends of these other companies. And they're just they're, they're trying to do bulk certificate sales. I think this is a good thing because although uh, you may not get the kind of support that you would want, depending upon, you know, how technically savvy you are. You know, we we're wanting the web to move more towards SSL. Um, we've just talked about how the only way to avoid the Verizon and AT&T persistent tracking monetizing cookie is is over secure connections. And to the degree that it's possible for a site to secure itself for 44 bucks or so, I think for some reason, $44 a year is one of the offers that I saw there. It's like, okay, that, you know, starts being a lot more feasible. So, and, and actually one of the ways you get that price is by committing to five years. Uh, so, so I think it's like, it's, and, and there, there's like a drop down where it's, you know, one, two, three, four, or five years. And we know that the more secure certificates have deliberately shorter, um, uh, lifetimes hooked to them. So an EV, I think, is a maximum of two years. Um, so you're not going to get, you know, as great a discount. And there are, they have like $1,000 plus certificates there. So th- they've got the range of them, but they also, they, they do have them apparently. If you, if you, if you want to, f- you know, five years worth, you can get it, you can get a good price. I think in a way the question should be, why are they so expensive? I yes, mean- exactly. Because remember, they are, you're right. They're just selling like nothing. <laughs> they're it's just here. selling bits. It's, yeah, it is. I mean, support. You mentioned support. That is certainly a significant cost. Um, on a regular cert, do they they have to verify, right? So yeah, they do. Um, but you know, they. I mean, and so yeah, right. I mean, we've had phone calls. Right. Uh, there, there's an automated process. There, there, there's a manual process. There is somebody actually. In, in the case of my EV certs, they did. You know, they 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 looked up Dun and Bradstreet numbers and verified, like from other sources, the the physical address right. of the organization. So they they really did. It's why it can take a week. It can take multiple right. days. But that's an EV. In, in, yeah. In order to qualify, at, yeah, at that higher end. So, um, I just think this sort of demonstrates a, a what is still an immature market. That this is, you know, this is changing, and now there is there is an increasing interest in sites moving to security. You know, things like the the Verizon Super Cookie and the the increasing interest in having secure connections puts more pressure on sites to add security and I'm glad that it's that you know that it's becoming affordable that there are some affordable choices like Steve in Columbus I'm not leaving DigiCert I'm really happy with you know I mean I want a a a, a you know a high end high reputation certificate yeah. by GRC but not everybody needs that sometimes all you want is just some privacy and you don't have to have you know ultra robust um, verification of your uh, uh, of your identity just having your domain protected you know and those are just called domain protection certificates that are so inexpensive four dollars and eighty cents inexpensive <laughs> but don't call them for tech support yeah they Phil, may not call you back yeah Phil Brick in the Bronx what a great name hey Phil Brick here from the Bronx he wonders how to get started with SSL I'm not an IT person nor do we have an IT staff, so 
I'm filling that position. We're a company with 10 PCs. I'd like to increase our level of security. We have Chrome. I'd like to add the S feature to the site, communications, HTTPS, he's talking about. I can't find anyone yet that could tell me who to contact or how to go about achieving that level of security or even if it makes sense. Who can I contact for this? Thank you. And I guess, can we say well, so his email is a, is a web domain? I don't know why not. Um, uh, his email address came from jcjproduce.com. Oh, it looks good. And I'll take, I know. I'll take some leafy vegetables. Yeah, it's a, it's a very nice site. Clearly, somebody, it's JavaScript-based, because, of course, I didn't have my JavaScript enabled no. at first, and yeah. so it scrolled off down into oblivion. So I thought, oh, let me try turning JavaScript on. And then it all came up and did nice flash animation or JavaScript or whatever it's doing. Um, so, so, Phil, if you're listening to this, and I assume you are, um, that server, that site exists somewhere. Someone is hosting that for you, and they certainly know how to help you do this. So, I mean, so it sounds like someone set this up for this company, JCJ Produce. It looks like a neat company. I like, like a, you know, a nice little operation. Um, so, who and, and these people are sending you a bill. So somebody in bookkeeping <laughs> is receiving a bill. And so you can contact them and say, hey, we need the, one of those $4.80 SSL certificates <laughs> from, from the question we just discussed before because that's perfect for you guys. You don't need – I mean, I looked. There's absolutely not selling no, on the site. nothing. There is – there is they, they cannot accept information. It's a brochure. So, yeah, so I would say on one hand, you really don't need security, but if you like to add the S, then I'm sure it wouldn't be difficult to do that. Um, wherever that site lives, whoever's sending you a bill every month for your, your hosting, they know how to do that. So contact them and say, hey, we want the S. Yeah, you, it's, the, it's the host that has to do it, not, not, yeah. the, not the customer. Correct. Craig in Conus. I don't know what that Wherever is. Wherever that is. That, that's, uh, that's what he wrote. I thought, what is a CONUS? Where is Something CONUS? Something United was... States. Uh, it sounds like POTUS. You know, it sounds like he might work. <laughs> you know, he might be jump at the fence. He might be somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he wonders why no one uses DNSSEC. I isn't it a good thing, Steve? I installed a, a Firefox extension called DNSSEC Validator. It's been several weeks. I haven't come across a single website that's using DNSSEC. I thought it was a benefit like HTTPS. Surely sites that talk security, for instance, SSL labs, or need security, for instance, banks, should be using it, shouldn't they? I thought this was a great question because it, it brings us back to the, the trend that we see over and over and over, which is people just don't want to change anything right. unless they, they really have to. Um, but the and, DNS isn't doesn't come from a client website. It comes from your from a DNS server, right? I mean, well, um, it is the case that when your browser looks up the domain, that it would be getting records which could be s securely signed. That is, what, so what this what this extension is doing is it's looking to see whether the Query whether the answer returned from a DNS query is signed. 
is it signed so that, for example, it absolutely cannot be spoofed? And nobody's really bothering to do that. I mean, we have all the technology. It, it, it's just it's one of these painful things where it, it requires, in fact, in the news, maybe what, a year ago, the root servers finally got signed. So they are now signed and that you had to have the signed root in order for the second level domain servers to be signed because it all has to sort of, you know, flow from the root. Um, but it just isn't a problem. You know, we've talked about and I don't remember now what the topic was, but there are really cool things that we could use DNS for. If it was more secure, I mean, if it was, well, for example, certificate problem, in fact, now I, now I do remember what it was. It was certs. For example, rather than, than you trusting the certificate chain, if we, if we had DNS security, individual sites could, could have their DNS essentially um, uh, verify the certificates that their server is um, is offering rather than going through the whole certificate hierarchy deal um, and, and that that I mean that that changes the whole model so that things like a breach with a root uh, certificate provider are not a problem or trusting all of the of, of of the roots, I, I ran across a story um, this morning that just sort of didn't make the cut about how the Chinese government is now trusted by Apple and Microsoft, and people saying, "Well, okay, so this is a problem because we know we, we've been talking about how they've been intercepting the the private communications of their own citizens, and if the if the Chinese government, not even the Hong Kong Post Office, but you know, it's like you know, China Nick, uh, is a, a trusted CA, they're able to issue certificates for any web domain in the world. I mean, they could issue a a certificate for. Oh, I, I would choose Google, except Google's Chrome is doing its own pinning, so that they, they can't get away with that. But most other sites that are not pinned, you know, GRC is also pinned, um, but most are not, and so that's a problem. So, so the idea is that you know, if if we had real security on DNS, which is just a matter of deploying it, it's all the technology is there. It's just not deployed and we and even like the latest OSs they're DNS sec aware but it's just the sites in the middle that just like well okay we really don't need it so we haven't done it and you know at some point there will be some driving force or you know perhaps at when it's turned on by default when you set things up and it's easy to do then it'll just sort of drift into use but as Greg notes eh, nobody's bothering right now by the way, the chat room tells me that CONUS, C-O-N-U-S, is a commonly used military designation for the continental United States. Ah, so he's hiding somewhere on the dirt. In plain somewhere. Yeah. Yes, yes. Carl in Chicago is next. He wonders whether those poodle attacks may be a little easier than we uh, said last week. In doing additional research on poodle, I've come across this claim several times. This is a quote taken directly from Imperial Violet. 
We knew they'd weigh in. An attacker can run JavaScript in any origin in a browser and cause the browser to make requests with cookies to any other origin. Am I missing something stupidly obvious? I <laughs> thought preventing cross-site requests was the whole point of JavaScript's same origin policy. If, the, if so, then how is this possible? If it's true, well, it does seem to significantly lower the bar for being able to pull off a successful attack. Because I, I thought the malicious JavaScript needed to have same origin privileges and could thus only be injected when connected to the site being attacked. Thanks for a great show, Carl. So uh, he, Carl is completely correct. And when I read that, I thought, what? And so I went over to Adam Langley's Imperial Violet blog. and He's the I Googler searched. that you knew would respond. Yeah, and I, I searched for can run JavaScript or in any origin or some right. little substring, and bang, there it is, and it's completely in context, not taken out of context. That's what he's saying, and it's completely wrong and irresponsible. I'm just, it's like, oh, come on, Adam. Um, I mean, this is, ups this is upsetting and confusing people. Um, it is, and it's not true. Um, it turns out that a Chrome extension... If the extension is explicitly given permission to, to act cross-domain and there's, there's, there's like a, um, a wildcard domain construction that allows, you, for example, you to use star.google.com so that Google could have their own, their own assets cross-domain like, like cross subdomain, then in that case, it's possible. And then there is also a W3C extension, which is sort of working its way through standardization, where if servers explicitly give permission to the browser for cross domain privileges, then it's possible. So essentially, what, what, what we're seeing here is that the same origin policy is absolute. And the restriction that that imposes is chafing a little bit on people like Google that are wanting, you know, more scripting freedom. They're wanting to do increasingly aggressive and arguably amazing things in a in in you know, in a browser container. And so the same origin policy is restricting what they can do as it was designed to do. Um, you know, and as it restricts the poodle attack. And so, you know, for him to just say an attacker can run JavaScript in any origin in a browser and cause that browser to make requests to any other origin, well, that's not true. It's, I it, mean, it's prevented by all implementations of JavaScript, including Chrome. Yes, with unless you unless the environment has explicitly softened that restriction. And it, it only does so knowing, knowingly and with, to only other specific domains because this is so dangerous. Right. I mean, you know, the, it's, it's the same origin policy. It's only that that makes any of this, the, the, you know, what we're doing w with scripting today in any way safe. So it's like, wow, okay. Uh, anyway, so Carl, that, that explains it. You're, you're not missing something stupidly obvious. You're correct. And you're thinking that that cross that you know blocking cross site scripting requests is the whole point of JavaScript's same origin policy, and it's only when 
the server or in the case of Chrome, a Chrome extension has deliberately put rules in that weakens that, that it is possible. And so it's unfortunate uh, that, you know, Adam is like trying to make this look worse than it really is. I wonder what his motivation is in that. I don't know. He's, he's you know, <laughs> he's, on a, he's on a roll. Yeah. <sighs> Josh Gardner in uh, San Antonio, Texas, wonders what we're all waiting for. Huh. With SSL 3, why are we still supporting 18-year-old technology? I mean, sure, I get it for compatibility reasons, but really? At this point, shouldn't we move on? I mean, SSL 3 was introduced in 1996. That's 18 years ago. TLS 1 in 99, 15 years ago. TLS 1.1 in 2006, eight years ago. At this point, shouldn't we be moving on? Seems like a bad idea to put a current technology at risk to support 15-year-old security for devices that, frankly, are unlikely to be being used at all. And the problem is, we, as we have found, um, it turns out these things are still in use. And... XP. Even more, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, when when Mozilla tried to turn that off, they got bit, and suddenly ten percent of their downloads disappeared. Wow! So it's like, ouch! Turn that back on again. So, so unfortunately, I think this is only going to get worse with time. Um, the good news is, as we know, SSL three O isn't that badly broken, but it it is things like Poodle. That, that create some pressure that finally induce people to start turning it off. But, you know, as these protocols get baked in the cake, as they say, you know, like people's microwaves and their light bulbs and their, you know, the Internet of Things is going to have, it already does have some of this stuff in it. And, you know, and then, you know, the companies that made those go out of business or they stop supporting them. And now you're stuck with something that's arguably vulnerable that will never be updated. So, I mean, it, it seems like we're we're in this mode where we're seeing this protocol spread over time. We're we're fixing things and creating new technologies, yet getting them adopted is I mean, really is difficult. The only thing I could imagine would be if there was some mechanism whereby they like it, like forcibly expired. Notice that that's what certificates do. And on the other hand, notice the trouble that it causes. Because every so often we'll see like, oh, my God, Twitter's cert expired. They're off the net. You know what I mean? Because like people get caught out by those sorts of forcible expirations. So so when we have forcible expirations, that causes problems too we could argue that maybe the you know that's the the lesser of the two evils um it's just sort of not clear so this is just sort of i think unfortunately innate to um to where we are and a perfect example of for example we were talking about dnssec which is having a hard time getting adopted because it just it's like well dns is working without it so i guess maybe we'll do it when we have to when something makes us just like finally abandoning this as Josh says, 18-year-old technology, yeah. SSL 3.0. Guillaume Auclair in Sherbrooke, Quebec, Canada, shouted in his subject line, Open VPN leakage! 
Warning, warning. Danger, Will Robinson. Sorry, Steve, had to catch your attention. I'm a longtime listener and follower, blah, blah, blah. I've been using ProXPN for quite some time now, and I thought it was... Uh, I thought I was protected against my ISP snooping, but I have a dedicated Linux box on my network, and its sole purpose is to be a VPN proxy. That Linux box connects to ProXPN and has some IP tables rules to allow it to only get to the outside world through the VPN ton zero tunneling interface. <clears throat> and on the other hand, that Linux accepts requests from the local network, all this behind an Astaro UTM. Wow, this guy, I wonder what he's doing which has rules to only allow that Linux to reach ProXPN and ProXPN only. Now, I thought I was preventing my ISP from watching what I was doing because from what I thought I knew, my packets were wrapped inside a packet that was addressed to ProXPN and then only ProXPN was really seeing what my packet was after decrypting it. I know someone who is an architect in IT for a big bank here in Canada and he assured me the content of the packet was encrypted, but not the header. So that OpenVPN is, in fact, leaking some header information, thus exposing to my ISP some information about what I'm doing. Is that is that true? No. Oh. <laughs> um, the good news is I know absolutely, positively, because I'm using OpenVPN and I dug all the way in. And, one of, the, for example, one of the things that you need to do is that OpenVPN tunneling interface needs to advertise a smaller packet size for its use over UDP so that the, so that the packets coming from the, the origin system are small enough to be enclosed within a UDP packet, which is the container. So maybe the the IT architect guy at the big bank in Canada just is like maybe it's just like some confusion of terminology. It is certainly the case that all packets have headers. But the only but an analysis of the packets that that is that is going from that system to ProXPN all it's going to show is packets going from that system to ProXPN. The, the content is inside the payload, which is absolutely encrypted. Everything, the, the entire packet is encrypted. So it's leaking zero information about what, where, about the packet's original pre-encryption, pre-tunneled data. Um, and actually, he's got a really neat setup. So he's using ProXPN as a static VPN so that like his, he's not like having to connect and disconnect. It's his home network has a persistent open VPN connection wow. to ProXPN. So he's in, all of his traffic is always running through hit that VPN out onto the internet and his his ISP is absolutely 100% blind to to what he's doing. That's awesome. Really very cool nice setup. Nice job. And he has an Astaro UTM in there and everything. Yep. Yep. You know, this would be a good time to take a break because some of our audience perhaps would love to have a VPN 
but may not have the expertise to set one up. And that's where Pro XPN can really help. Speak there, of the devil. Speak of the devil. There are other <laughs> advantages, of course, because uh, you know when you use Pro XPN, you can also specify where your traffic emerges on the internet. So you can bypass geographic restrictions, for instance. Pro XPN has servers all over the world in the yeah, U.S., yes, Seattle and Dallas and Los Angeles and New York, but also in London, in Amsterdam and Singapore. You'll get a 2048-bit encryption key, 512-bit encrypted tunnel, open VPN, or if your device doesn't support it, PPTP. But, you know, thanks to ProXPN, more devices do support open VPN, including your iOS or Android device through their apps, which I think is really slick, really sweet. I want you to try ProXPN right now. Visit ProXPN.com slash twit. Your ISP won't see what you're doing. You don't have to worry about the six strikes rule and false positives. You won't have to worry about geographic filtering or blocked websites. Software for Windows and Mac means you have advanced controls. You can select you know, which ports it uses or uh, connect to startup as our correspondent does or even select which programs would be shut down if your anonymous connection should ever be interrupted pro xpn is amazing i want you to try it right now visit proxpn.com slash twit you'll learn all about it they do have a free account but you know what might as well get the premium account because with their seven-day cancellation for a full refund you 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 it costs you nothing if you decide you don't like it so that's better i think it's the way to do it and if you use the offer code SN50 at checkout, you're going to get 50% off the monthly price when you sign up for a 12-month subscription. That means it's less than 5 bucks a month when you sign up for a year. And it's good for the lifetime of your account. If you're not satisfied, cancel within seven days for a full refund. ProXPN.com slash twit. Just don't forget to use the offer code SN50. SN50 for 50% off. When you sign up for a year. ProXPN accepts payments through Visa, through PayPal, and now Bitcoin. ProXPN.com slash twit. Leo Laporte, Steve Gibson, on we go. Question number... I had it right here. Eight. Eight. Shh. Shh. Ari. Ari in South Africa. Shh. He has observed that the FIDO UTF YubiKey is very different. Steve, there seems to be a big difference between the old YubiKey covered in a prior episode and the new blue YubiKey. Se seemingly contradictory quotes from their website read, quote one, the key pairs are generated on the device in the secure element, but the key pairs are not stored on the security key. Instead, the key pair, public key and encrypted private key are stored by each relying party service that initiated the registration. Quote two... The secrets contained in the security key belong to the end user exclusively and are never transferred, copied, or stored by a service provider or any other application provider. What is going on, Steve? <laughs> so uh, those are both technically true. Um, and this is one of the weird things about FIDO is FIDO, unlike my solution, Squirrel, Fido generates random key pairs for every association that you make with a the so-called relying party is 
you know, like the remote website. So the problem is that requires storage to have a growing number of key pairs. But there is no storage or not lots of storage in a lean little device like the YubiKey. So the solution they came up with is kind of counterintuitive, and that is have the relying party, that is that remote server, who you are authenticating with, also hold the authenticating information. It's like, what? Um, well, that's what you I do with a password, too. I mean, if right? I... Well, but yeah, but that's the problem is, I mean, one of the nicest things about my squirrel solution is you're, you're, you give the server no secrets to keep. In this case, you're giving the server the things that you need in order to prove your identity to it. Um, and the way they do it is they, during this, and it requires, you know, a back and forth interchange, what doesn't leave the YubiKey, which has no ability to leave... Or, and I should sort of broaden this a little bit to say a FIDO U2, U2F device, of which the YubiKey is the best-known example, is a secret key which is used to encrypt the private key. So in order to authenticate, and we'll cover this, we'll do a FIDO U2F podcast at some point, in order to covered this, and I, I read all this once and some of it's drained out of my brain because <laughs> there's only so much room. Pretty full already, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, the FIDO protocol requests the private key to be sent back into the YubiKey. And the YubiKey uses its secret key to decrypt the private key, which it's received back from the website, that, that, that then allows it to assert its identity by, by signing something like a nonce that the site has provided, which it then does, and it returns that to the site, which is then able to verify that with the public key. So, it, I mean, it's clever in that it allows to have a zero-storage um, hardware token, which only needs to store one master key, which it never lets go of. Um, and then you're able, to, you're able to have the storage essentially offloaded to all the different sites where you have created identities. Um, what, the way that differs, for example, from Squirrel is that that does allow you to to break to like individually break um, identity associations um, rather than having them all governed by by a single static key which squirrel uses although it, it the the trade-off is that they all have to essentially you're giving them your your private key to hold for you um, you encrypt it and then they decrypt it um, oh, and then you decrypt it as you need to identify yourself. So technically, what, what the way to read these paragraphs is that what's never leaving the key is the, is the key that's used to encrypt 
the, the private data that is leaving the key, but nobody can access that because the key that was used to encrypt it never leaves the key. Anyway, it's, it's yeah, <laughs> a little more complicated. So it it's kind of almost like symmetric key. Well, but I guess it isn't because well, only yeah, it, you it, know it, your it, key. It is, it, it's a symmetric key in the Yuba key, which is used to encrypt the asymmetric right. private key, which you then export to the remote website who holds on to it. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, no, uh, question number nine is uh, closely related, as we'll see. It, well, it comes to us from Charles uh, Jerchak in Collinsville, Illinois. And he's wondering about Yubico's new FIDO security key. He simply wrote, I have one and use it. Please uh, tell us how it works. <laughs> how, so, does, how do it work? Charles, you just got the short version of how it works. And I don't think I left out any super important details, but I realized this was, you know, I mean, this is this is topic for a podcast because there's lots of subtleties. So we will definitely, I mean, FIDO U2F is beginning to happen now. Uh, it exists with the YubiKey and Google at this point. Um, and as it gains traction and gets used uh, in other places, we'll certainly cover it. Because it's, you know, it's important technology, much as, you know, we've talked about single and multiple factor authentication and time-based tokens and one-time passwords and all that stuff. So we will definitely do that. Question 10 comes from Steve in uh, Austin, Texas. He wonders, eh, I don't know, are you cutting Apple too much slack? Hi, Steve. I noticed you hold back on upgrading Windows versions for a long time, but you update your iOS device. Almost as soon as a new version comes out. Your stated reasoning for holding off on the new Windows versions is they need to prove their security first. Well, doesn't that apply to iOS? Just curious. I think that's a very valid challenge, actually. Um, one thing I think that keeps me from updating to newer versions of Windows is that it's way more painful than it is yes. to, to update That's iOS. True. You know, updating iOS is just a matter of saying, okay, I want to update, you know. And in fact, as I understand it, that's one of the new touted advantages of Windows 10 is we're finally supposed to be able to update it sort of in line rather than scrapping all of what we have. I mean, you know, I guess what? Theoretically, you're able to install a new version of Windows over the old one, but oh my goodness, I've never done that. I, I take the opportunity, since I do it so seldom, to start over again. And that lets me flush away all of the software that I installed once and, and forgot about and and really never use on a daily basis. Sort of a you know a spring cleaning every couple of years. But at the same time, you know, look what just happened with iOS eight and bricking iPhones when right. we went to eight point zero point one. I'm very glad that that news, you know, that I that I wasn't immediately jumping on that and and then bricking my phone and having to wait for eight point zero point two to come along and save me. So anyway, I guess you know, it, um, I, I think I treat my iOS devices a little more like an appliance, and my Windows system. I mean, it really is my heart and soul. This is my, this is my environment, and I, I really curate it much more carefully than I do uh, my, you know, my my phone and my pads. 
Our last question comes to us from Diana Bakhan in Port Orange, Florida. I have a classic iPod, by the way. <laughs> they stopped making those, uh, Diana, so hold on to it. It sounds like it's on its way out. Click, spin, high to low pitch, click, spin. Apple doesn't, oh, she knows this. Apple does not sell the classic anymore. And I have a massive amount of music and video on this thing. It holds 160 gigs. Will Spinrite work on an iPod 2? This classic HDD may not allow me to play my monster ballads in between podcasts for much longer. Steve, I thank you for the hard work you put into everything. Love the show. You and Leo, Batman and Robin, well, together. Okay, so um, the answer is yes. Uh, we've talked in podcasts years ago about Spinrite's ability to repair the hard drives in the iPods, the early iPods. That's what you're hearing, that click, spin, high-low pitch and everything. It's what's right. trying to read a sector. And, yeah. Now, Diana, you do need a wizard because it's not a matter of plugging Spinrite into the iPod or running it. You, you need a wizard who's able to open that iPod and and then essentially plug that hard drive into a PC on which he run he or she the wizard or wizardess runs Spinrite. So, uh, in fact, there was a great story we talked about. Some some guy fixed a friend's iPod, and then the word got out. Oh, I get no, I, no. Everybody, I guess he'd been collecting iPods. Everyone's dead iPods. They were bringing to him. And then when he, he fixed someone that absolutely had to have some data off of it, and then he started running Spinrite on all of the other iPods and fixing all of them, and even the solid-state ones that had died, Spinrite brought back to life, which is one of our earlier SSD recovery stories. Um, and then he was, like, like not sure if he wanted to give them back to people or, <laughs> or what. That's right. So, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So it absolutely can work, but... You know, you need to decide, I guess, if it's worth it because it's not a matter of just plugging it in. You need to – because the, the, there's not enough access. Spinrite needs very low-level access in order to get at the guts. It sounds like it's on its last legs, though, or its last spins. And what was the term? It will soon become spin-rotten. Spin-rotten. Uh, uh, if you don't make it spin-righted uh, pretty soon. So I wouldn't wait long. Uh, because it's in trouble. And maybe, assuming that it can still dock into iTunes, uh, it might be time to update to a newer iPod. And 160 gigs, is that more than the iPods have now, Leo? Oh, yeah, much. Wow. Uh, the iPad goes up to 128. Oh, you're right. the iPhone. So 160. Yeah. But it's a physical disc. In, yeah. in fact, um, Tim Cook said why they don't make them anymore <coughs> is because they can't get the parts. I think it was a yeah. Hitachi they were using, or Toshiba. No, somebody said Toshiba. Wow. Crazy little drive. Yeah, there were those. Remember when IBM came out with them? They were the size of compact oh, flash. Oh, the, the 1.8. Yes, yes. 1.8 inch. Yep. yep. Very cool. No one makes them anymore. So, Well, Steve, no one makes you anymore. You broke. They broke the mold <laughs> when they cranked out Mr. G, and that's why we are thrilled to have him each and every week talking about security on this very program. We do the show at 11, uh, sorry, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern. Now, we got to tell you, we're going to yep, switch out of summertime next week. Next week we yep. fall back. 
So that doesn't change. And I get, every time I say this, I hear people in the chat room going, no, you're wrong, Leo, but I'm right. It doesn't change a time from our point of view, which is still at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern, but it does change our UTC time. So I just I mentioned this because we're now minus eight or will be minus eight, not minus seven. The sun will be in a different location. <laughs> yeah, we're actually we're moving. Doing... UTC never moves, but because of it, correct, we will now be at twenty one hundred UTC. So do the calculations to your local we get time. To, we get to sleep an extra hour, right? So we'll be in an extra great mood for the yes, podcast. We'll get an extra hour. That's nice. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see you next week, though. We love it if you come by and. And, and join us live. If not, and it's on election. It's on election day, isn't it? It Next is Tuesday, November fourth. Yeah. Well, everybody, vote before you listen. I've already mailed mine in. Good man. I got my ballot, yep. but I haven't uh, mailed it yet. It's a tough one in California. We got a lot of initiatives, and of course, dueling television ads like crazy. Oh goodness, yes, it's out of control. Uh, do come back and watch live, but if you can't, on-demand audio and video available. Now, Steve has uh, some interesting, unusual formats at his website, grc.com, including a 16-kilobit audio version, which sounds like hell, frankly. At the, at the assembly language version. But it's small. <laughs> <laughs> the transcripts, however, are quite elegant, and that's because a human named Elaine writes those. He has both of them, along with Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, and all the good stuff that he does for free, the pro bono work including Squirrel, all at grc.com. Now, for next feedback episode, which is two episodes hence, should all go well on the Internet, if uh, the good Lord willing and the creeks don't rise, <laughs> we'll be... You can ask your question now at grc.com slash feedback. He does not accept email. Oh, you could tweet him, though, at sggrc. He's been known to include a tweet or two from time to time. And I did forget to mention Simon Zarafa, who was responsible for cluing me into the RC4 update spritz. That cipher I had in my notes here. Uh, a, a, a shout out to Simon, who uh, keeps who tweets all the time. He's a relentless tweeter and uh, keeps he makes sure I don't lose track of things. So I appreciate that, Simon. Relentless tweeter. Uh, thank you so much, Steve. Thank you everybody for being here. And we will see you next time on Security Now. Bye-bye. Thanks, Leo. <laughs>